G'day, it's Phil here. We're about to start the third instalment of a remarkable learning journey of a person and the organisation that is built up around him. The hunger for finding new and better and different ways to do things while maintaining the standards at the same time, while having fun and trying to be yourself and learn what your best self is all at the same time. I can't think of a better example of all of the qualities, all of the graduate outcomes of a school for tomorrow. The good person, the future builder, the continuous learner and unlearner, the solution architect, the responsible citizen, the team creator, and Scott Pickett. This is episode three of the special series. I'm excited, I can't wait, let's go. Before you start your conversation with today's Game Changers special series guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little bit about our Series 9 sponsor? Of course, Adriano. A School for Tomorrow is a globally recognised network that supports students, educators, school leaders and their communities to thrive in the new world environment. Their Circle Global School Research Program continues to design and run large international collaborative research projects that improve outcomes, strengthen culture and support the people in schools who are serving the rapidly changing world of their own communities. To find out more about how you can come on this journey, you can visit the link in the description or contact their client associate, Kyle, at kyle at circle.education. That's kyle, K-Y-L-E, at circle.education. Let's go. Hello, Scott. Hey, g'day, Phil. Nice to be back talking with you again. Sir, last time we talked, we'd reached the point, you've established Estelle, you've got your own restaurant, you've made some big decisions in terms of your personal life and you've come back. Um, There's a story about then about how you maintain that restaurant and then grow. I want to start by asking how you've learned to find space in your life to stop, pause and reflect to make big decisions. Because a lot of us, particularly a lot of us in education, just don't give ourselves permission to do that. It's a really good question. And it's something that I've only learned to do over the last few years, to be honest. And I probably don't do it enough. It's something that, you know, you get caught up in the day-to-days, especially for us, there's always a lunch service, there's always a dinner service, there's always things to do. So I normally do it late at night or I remove myself from the business for two, three, four days and I just clear my diary and I give myself clear headspace. And I allow myself to do that so that I don't feel anxious or feel like I have to be there all the time, which I do. But if you remove yourself from it, then there's no white noise. There's nothing around you. Now, sometimes that's late at night for me. We'll finish the service at 10 o'clock and I'll go to my office and I'll clear my inbox and I'll do the orders and I'll check everything. And then I'll just put some music on a lot or I'll read or I'll just take notes. And I've always got notes and diaries next to me where I'm writing down thoughts or or I'm putting them in my phone so that then I get them you know, they had to get back to them at some stage or I write myself lists. I write lists all the time and I just clear my brain. And I find if I don't do that, then I actually don't sleep very well. That's something that I need to do so that I feel like I've processed everything during the day, that I've done everything that I've expected of myself personally and that I know that I'm not going to forget that thought or that dream or that dish or that concept or that flavour profile and that I can just park it and get back to it when I've got some time. So there's kind of different ways that I've learned to over the years. Yeah, it's a, it's a real challenge, isn't it? Yep. I mean, that, that's, uh, again, people who know me know I'm obsessive about carrying a moleskin around me or a notebook around me wherever yep. I go. And if you look inside it, it's a, a lot of it is doodling. Yep. Um, but yep. then a lot of it is, you know, note-taking every, every conversation of significance 
going back many, many years, I've got that conversation and I'll then remember that conversation and go back through that. It's the ideas, it's the passage of ideas. Yeah. Um, I guess I guess there, there are two things that I want to explore around this. That, and, and, and one is how you learn to give yourself that permission, um, how you learn to establish that uh, that principle. Of, it's it's, it's yeah. almost what psychologists call that third space, which is the transition between work and home where you yeah. create for yourself a routine. Um, and then how you learn about it being uninterrupted. I mentioned the British comedian Jimmy Carr last time we spoke. I've got another one for you, which is John Cleese, who was asked, yeah. you know, around... Um, creativity in the creative space and he said that the single most important thing to help creative people to be creative is not to interrupt them you have to give them an uninterrupted space where they can just do whatever it is that they want to do where there aren't text messages or phone calls or emails or important meetings or whatever coming through how did you learn to recognize that uninterrupted space I don't know how I learned. It kind of just happened, really, I think, because I was so busy and I was just finding it hard to kind of cram everything in. So in the early days of Estelle, and then we opened up some Crispin in Smith Street and before we did Matilda, I think I stumbled across it because we were shut one or two days a week and we had so much work to do. I had so much to do that I would be in the restaurants by myself and I would be prepping beef or salmon or making a sauce. I would be playing music. But I think I stumbled across it just through giving myself space because the restaurant was closed and I had a lot to do to get ahead for the week. And then I learned that if I was by myself, that I was in that environment, that I could be creative, that I could think about things and that I that I allowed myself to think because the day-to-day of my job and my life has always been to produce, has been to cut carrots, has been to make a sauce, has been to make a terrine, has been to make puff pastry. It's a thing that I need to like to actually tick off uh, boxes I had to actually produce and I had to be productive and I had to and and it had to be something tangible now that could be a litre of fish stock or 20 litres of veal stock but to give myself thinking space to process my thoughts and allow myself to sleep I had to give myself space and then think right because I was training not to be lazy right not to be a cowboy not to do things if you weren't actually doing a lot and it and it kind of went against the grain of what I'd always been trained to actually sit there and allow myself to think and not get anxious or down on myself or feel like I was being lazy because I was thinking. Or or self-indulgent, you know. It's that feeling feeling guilty because you're taking time for yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what are you doing, you lazy prick? You're just sitting there. I'm like, well, actually, I'm thinking and my brain's actually one of the most important parts of me to actually allow us to grow, to learn, to process thoughts, to think about things. So giving my t- myself the time and space and the permission, as you said, to actually think was a massive thing. And I think that that I stumbled across it in the early days of Estelle because I was the only person in there and I liked being there. So I'd be there for 10 hours and, look, I might only have five or six hours of work to do in a chop-chop sense, but I found and stumbled across time where I could think and write things down and read about food again and think about food and process my thoughts. And I found that that made me much better. Now I kind of do that late at night so that I can clear my brain after dinner service when the team are cleaning down. And I'll do that from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. where it's quiet, it's quiet outside. I've processed, I feel like I've achieved everything that I wanted to during the day. And then I finish my day by giving myself that time and space. Yeah, funnily enough, it's, it's, um, I'm, I mostly do that in the kitchen as well too. Mm. Although usually usually it's when I'm cleaning up yep. because when yep. I'm cooking, 
And it, for me, cooking is, it, 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 if I can, it's two or three hours in the kitchen yep. because when you've got fire and sharp things, you stop thinking about work, don't you? And then and then when I'm cleaning up, that's when I start thinking it's about the ideas around this. this yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but look, I still do dishes in the restaurants. The boys look at me, go, "Chef, oh, I'll do that. I'll do that." I'm like, "No, I like being in the pot wash. I like being in the yeah. plunge because there's no other pressure." That's it. I literally don't have to think about what I'm doing because I'm just like you know, I'm cleaning a pot and a pan. But my brain can go somewhere else while my hands are doing a mundane task yeah. or chore, and I find it very calming and 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 it's the thing where you realize that what you can actually do is you can consciously use a moment where you're doing something else to yes. do the reflection and the thinking because yep. There, yep. there are no more minutes in the day there are no more hours in the week you've got to find you've either got to stop doing something which is very difficult to do or you've got to recognize that actually um you know when you're making the beds or when you're doing the laundry or when you're yep. out cutting the hedge or when you're cleaning the dishes or, or that sort of thing, that's when you can do your stopping and thinking and reflecting, but you better have a notebook with you at the time because otherwise you'll forget that really, really good idea yeah, 10 yeah, minutes exactly. later, won't you? Yeah, yeah but so, doing, um, and I mean, sometimes I'll do that fucking going for a long drive in the car or going for a ride on my motorbike. I'll be somewhere yeah. where I'm, like, obviously I need to be present to drive and ride a yeah. bike, but, you know, once yeah, I've done I, that, it's kind of free brain space. That's it. Look, I used to be head of a school in Brisbane. It was absolutely manic, and, and I'm very glad I don't do that job anymore. But uh, I used to go for a drive every night down to the Gold Coast and back. Yeah. And that, and that was my yep. thinking time. It was the only way that I could... I could just clear just, your head. Yeah, yeah, yeah just yeah, clear exactly. my head, think about what was coming the next day and, and so on. And, 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 and that might seem like an extreme way to do it, but as you said, you've got to physically remove yourself from the place yep. or from yep. your normal routine and do things that are consciously you know, allow your brain to tick over. Um, I can't tell you how many good ideas I've lost between the shower and my notebook on my desk. <laughs> well, you know. lots of mine come in the shower. Lots yeah, of mine exactly, come in the shower. Exactly. I, I, I want to take you to St. Crispin if I can, because it's, yep. it's, it's a restaurant, uh, and you and I haven't spoken about this before, but it's, 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 it's a restaurant that's one of the fond, I have some of the, my fondest memories of food from that restaurant because... Yep. It played with difference and, and similitude it, so beautifully. Like you'd walk in there and you'd know you'd be having a, you know, you'd order the scallop dish or whatever it was, yeah. but it would just wouldn't quite be like other places and other experiences that you'd had of it. So every experience was a learning experience. And talk about an experience of wonder and awe, you'd, you'd put something in your mouth, oh, gee. And then that gets your head thinking and, you know, the famous French writer Marcel Proust who talks, you know, about the, the power of food and, and memories and to get us all thinking and so on and so on. Um, where did you give yourself permission to do things differently and to try things that were different? Because a, a lot of people can't take that step. I think that came at a stall in the early days and some of it was a freedom because it was, you know, my first restaurant and the first one that we didn't actually have to follow structure and I could really lean into that unstructured, wild, crazy part of my brain and myself. Um, and I think the other one, the other side, it came through necessity in a sense indirectly because, you know, we had to water just what we needed to because things were so tight. So 
You know, like if we ordered something and there was leftovers or there was a different vegetable or something didn't sell, then we cooked every piece of food that we had in the fridge every day. Yep. So we were coming up with different combinations and that was because I didn't want to spend any more money on veg. I'm like, right, I've got sort of four heads of broccoli there. What am I going to do with it? Right, I've yes. got a salmon there. What am I going to do with it? I've got scallops. And so we played around with different combinations through, you know, the fact that we couldn't just keep uh, wasting more food or doing different things. So thinking outside the box came through that thing of, well, like I don't have the budgets that there we used to do. Uh, how can we create different things using what we've got on hand? So it was a freedom there, I think. Yeah, and there's a great Australian term for that, which is scrounging, isn't it? Yes, it's, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, completely. You know, I think one of the one of the one of the one of the best um, one of the best early learning experiences I had, and so, so, so again, as as folk on this podcast will know this, and there's some military in my background, and I did infantry training when I was younger before I became an artillery officer. And when you're in the infantry, they'll, they'll talk all the time about adapt, improvise, overcome, um, and that when you're doing your training people will deliberately create training circumstances for you where you simply don't have everything that you need and yep. they'll deliberately create conditions of adversity for you and scarcity, particularly scarcity. You know, yep. where you've got to sit there and go, well, okay, I don't have everything I need. So therefore I'm going to have to come up with a solution that is different and in and around. And I think, again, sometimes in our game, of education, people imagine that if they had more time and more resources, that things would be better for them. But if you give them more time and resources, all they've got is more time and more resources 100%. to worry about and do the same stuff that they were doing yeah. beforehand because it's not time and resources. It's the lack of time and the lack of resources which actually compel you to be creative yeah. and to adapt and to and to move in and around that. And you know, everything that you know, everything that we've learned about the research of the development of character suggests that there is something special about adversity. It's not the only place you learn character. You do learn character in different other points as well too, but you learn something special about character in times of difficulty. And if you create scarcity and you create adversity, um, uh, not only, I think, do you build a team um, out of that, and that's I think that's the only way really to build Great a really points. tight team. Yep. You know, but you you build the character that says that we can find a different way and we can find a better way forward because we have to. And I mean, chefs are very good at that too. You know, because most kitchens aren't extremely well equipped. They find ways to make things happen. And I say this when we build restaurants and we go through and the designer and you got to have this, 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 this. I'm like, well, like actually, do we? Because like you give them all of those resources, all of those things. And then they want more and then it's still not enough and it's still not enough and it's never perfect and it's not a perfect environment like, but we've done a similar job as good, if not better, you know, with half the resources because we have to. And whilst it might be a major thing now, if that's not in the budget and if we can't afford it, we will make that happen regardless. So, you know, that's just is what it is. You know, I think they're great points, Phil. So where did you learn the bit where you tell people what we have to do? Jim Collins. Yep. The, the American leadership author talks about humility and willpower and the, the, the capacity to bridge the apparently irreconcilable gap between the two. And that's the, the one thinking about leadership that I quote more than any others, except perhaps for John C. Maxwell, who talks about know the way, go the way, show the way. But there's a bridge you have to build between where we are now and where we're going to tomorrow. And you've got to be very humble about that. But at the same time, you've got to project yourself yep. over that gap. You almost have to, that, that gap is almost, a, it's almost a mental uh, bridge yep. before the physical bridge is built. Uh, where did you learn to build that bridge? 
I think that probably started when I started doing the pass. So the pass in the kitchen is where you control the dockets, the checks, you, you normally dress the food and you're the link pin between the front of house and the back of house. And I first started doing the pass in 2000 at the square and all of a sudden you're in command of a team of 16 behind you and a team of 15 or 16 in front of you and you're coordinating you know, tables and timings and bringing everything together. You're like a conductor of the orchestra, really. That's the way that I put it. And I think that is really where I started to learn how to command a team, how to drive a team, how to make everybody work as a team, because you'll have a fish section, you'll have a meat section, you'll have veg, you'll have larder, you'll have hot starters, you'll have snacks, you'll have pastry. So trying to coordinate 8, 10, 12 bodies down to the minute so that everything comes up at the same time, so that the pigeon is cooked perfectly, it's off the bone, the sauce arrives, the plate arrives. That really, and it had always been ingrained in me because I've been part of that process for 10 years or 15 years. But when I started to command that, I think do the pass is when I really started to grow and shine and really direct. And it took a few years to build that confidence inside myself as well too. That wasn't overnight. Like I could do the pass, but to not second guess every decision that you make when, you, when you're surrounded by great cooks in a two-star restaurant, took a couple of years to actually get that confidence and that self-belief that every decision I was making on the fly was the right decision. And I think that was time and experience and a bit of confidence. Yeah, it's that coordinating operational role, isn't it? That, yeah. that, that like, a, so there's a, there's a lot of great leaders in education. Um, uh, and again, this is an edu- this is a podcast that's aimed at educational leaders, and and there are people listening who are thinking about a career in and around, and and very much the sort of experience that you're describing. So many of the lessons. This is this is like a manual for 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 how to become the leader of an organisation. You've got to do that operational role before you get to the top. You've got to start at the bottom. You've always got to clean yep. dishes, don't you? Like everyone clean, everyone cleans the dishes. You know, I remember, I remember going to a speech day um, when I was a kid, and there was this terrific fellow uh, who was the speaker, a guy called Lloyd Waddy, and he and he, he made the point that everybody takes the bins out at night. Yeah, you know what yeah, I mean. Yeah, yeah, so every every so you've got to take the bins out. You've got to clean the dishes. You've got to do that stuff. But then somewhere along the line, you've got to have that operational role where there's a lot of pressure placed on you and your your learning is how to draw it all together and to act with grace in and around it, you know, because even if inside you're absolutely sweating bullets, you've still got to appear calm Um, and you've got that control. If you're not in control, then the kitchen and the team and the rest of it. Which teaches you an enormous amount about emotional self-regulation as well too. Um, I think the stuff where I'm hardest on myself now is, is when I don't maintain my composure and usually our team are pretty forgiving with me around it eventually. Um, yeah. <laughs> not, not, not at the moment. If I, if I lose, if I, if I lose it, then, then they're not happy with me at all. But yeah. the, you know, they're pretty forgiving around it. But I can remember every time I've lost it over the last three or four years. Every single time I can remember yeah. it, and I still beat myself up around it. How did you make? How did you make the call that you were going to go from one establishment to multiple establishments? Where did the risk pitch come in? It was kind of a base plan in my head. I never wrote a business plan, a five or 10 year plan. It's kind of been in my brain. I didn't write it down. I probably wish that I did a little bit more along the way, but then I like the freedom to just yeah follow it. And I really followed opportunity and one went to two that went really well. So Crispin was amazing restaurant, great food, great space. That probably went for about six years. Halfway through that, I kind of split Estelle into two. I did um, Estelle Bistro and ESP or Estelle by Scott Pickett, so a fine diner next to the bistro. 
about four years ago, we merged those into one just for scales of economy and where I was at it myself and the food that we wanted to cook. And then really Matilda came through opportunity, came through a great space, a great location, Domain Road, South Yarra, um, you know, great landlord, great support. And I wanted to do something over fire and coal. So that's where that kind of came along. Uh, and then it, like a couple of pickets delis along the way because I love roast chicken, I love sandwiches. And I kind of, I get bored very easily. So I'll kind of, like I'll tick something off and then whilst I'm still completely focused on it, the other half of me is a little bit bored. What's next? What's next? What's the next project? What's the next challenge? What can we do? You know, what haven't we done? And I suppose really during COVID, that's where it came along to look at places like sort of Long Grain that I bought and then the former Vudamon site that's now Chancery Lane to take that on. And I think what I love most about restaurants and being in the fortunate position that I am is I can have a dream and I can have an idea. And I mean, Matilda was a brand new build. It was a vacant lot. And then three years later, you're standing in a restaurant that was a picture in your mind's eye, like a notion, and then you've built it and then you've created it and then you're fucking standing in it and you're like, right, now the real work, now the real hard work really starts because yeah. you maintained it and cook every day. But I enjoy the process. I enjoy the design. I enjoy the architecture. I enjoy having the concepts. I enjoy the research. So that's my kind of side projects always is, is kind of what's next. But having that dream and standing there for me, that's a real sense of achievement. Yeah, it's a, it's a moment, isn't it? Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a yeah. real it's a real moment when it happens. When you look back on this process, where did you learn to absorb the pressure and the stress for other people? I think that's ingrained in a chef because the high pressure environments, you're always under the pump. You're always, you know, there's never enough time in the day. So I think as I was trained to cook and I worked in better kitchens that I learned that, but I also worked for the best people that I could find that suited me and my personality and what I wanted to do. So if you surround yourself with great people, but more importantly, work with great people, great people that have got more experience, that, you know, they have a presence and an aura and an energy that can show you these things that you can learn and soak things off. I think that was kind of developed over the years and that the more pressure that you have in a kitchen and then you, like I've, like I've kind of amped myself up from one to two to three to seven. So it's just growing and it's grown over time, but it's about, you know, the people that I've worked for that kind of mentored me for many years that still are now that I mean, you know, that are friends now that are mentors that are peers, but then also, so that's looking up and looking down the people that you surround yourself, that you employ, that work with as a team. I've got staff now that have been, been with me six, seven years like out of a 10, 11 year business, a long time. So them growing, understanding the way that you operate, the way that you work, sharing your vision and taking a bit of load off. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? About two weeks from now, when I get back to Sydney to see my family over Christmas, um, I'll be going pretty much straight away to a mate's place for for dinner on the Saturday night, dinner and drinks. And um, he's he's been working the same job for 50 years. He taught me when I was at school and he was yep. my master teacher when I went back to um, teach they're still doing the same job is remarkable remark better teacher than i'll ever be you know it's just an extraordinary teacher yeah. but the, the the role of mentors along the way and then i'm sitting there and you know there's dave thomas god bless you and then i'm thinking about you know joe carolis who was my head back in the 90s who just taught me remarkable things and then julie gillick who taught me um wonderful things and then peter crawley and ian lambert who gave me lots and lots of opportunities along the way as well too um and then there are the people who I currently learn from and with who are clients of mine now. A wonderful guy called Mike Fallon who runs a school 
in uh, in Canada, um, who's absolutely terrific. Uh, uh, a very curious and interested cricket buff and geography teacher called Dave yeah. Atkinson. I could you just rattle all these names yeah. off, and they're they're all people who are excellent, and they've all got their own vision. And you have to keep learning. I'm a, I'm a very I'm a very big believer that whatever you do. You, like I, I have to be able to learn from the people I'm with just as much, if not more than whatever they could possibly glean um, from me for there to be any value to the relationship. Cause there's got to be that exchange, that yeah, reciprocity, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, in, in and around that. And I think that also comes down to recognizing and appreciating. I mean, I'm in a pretty a heavily driven ego industry you know chefs have got egos you know no, surely not well a couple here and there Phil. <laughs> a couple here and there and it's a very competitive industry you know you know chefs are competitive by nature they want to be the best to do the best and that's like innately inside them or brought out with them or trained or ingrained in them but i think for me as i get older now that i'm in my 40s actually even though you know i've got a pretty healthy ego some would say is actually recognising that you can still learn that I can step back and say, actually, do you know what? That's a fucking great idea. I didn't think of that, but that's a great idea that that guy's done or or shared or made or told me or I've recognised and not being too full of yourself to actually, like, appreciate, recognise and be thankful about the fact that, like, like, we've all got different experiences, different backgrounds, been through different things and that, you can then actually be big enough or man enough to say, actually, that's a great idea. And gee, I'm going to use that one because it's a cracker, you know? Yeah. 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 No, I get that. I, uh, I, I absolutely get that. Talking about um, egos, let's come to snack masters because yep. that's heaps of fun and that's great. Yeah, yeah. To, and that's great. And that's great television. Like it really, really is um, for that. For a, about half of our audience is international. Do you, do you just want to give a, a, a little explanation about, what Snackmasters is, first of all, and then tell us about how it all came about. Okay, so Snackmasters is a new TV show that's just airing this week, actually. The last episode's on tonight. It's the twisty episode. We did a pilot of four, uh, myself and Poe. So Poe was uh, Poe's on MasterChef um, in season two. Great cook, great TV presenter. And it came about they wanted me to be a contestant and I said, I'm 45. I'm too old to be the contestant. Look, I'm going to do the fucking host role. We'll not do it. And they said, look, we've got the host already, but we'd really love you to be like a contestant and sort of cook off. And I said, Oh, look, I'll have a think about it. They said, anyway, everyone's um, actually sending in, you know, one minute videos of a day in their life. So I said, okay, yeah, I'm sure I'll do this. And during COVID, I actually did a daily video. My nickname's Digger. And it was called Digger Goes Rogue. And it was just me being wild and mad and doing crazy, you know, funny skits during COVID to, you know, put a smile on everyone's face. So I sent Warner Brothers and Channel 9, the network, a video of a day in my life that was kind of half me, half serious and half Digger Goes Rogue kind of thing. And it was a pretty wild video. And in the end, I just jumped on my Harley and I roared down the street. And then I sent it through to the network and they called me the next day and they said, that is the best fucking video we've ever seen. We want you to be the host, but not just a cook. And I said, well, I told you that anyway. (laughs) So it came about very quickly. So it was filmed in June and July uh, during lockdown five. um, And it was in New South Wales. So COVID border shutdowns, everything. So Look, 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 we had to react and move because we couldn't get out of New South Wales, even though I'm in Victoria. I drove up over the border. 
So they wanted to do a little pilot. So it's a version of, and so Statmasters is on in the UK. Um, Michelle Rue Jr. is the host. And it's basically trying to, you know, the premise is crack the snack of what is a twisty, what is a drumstick, what is in a, in a whopper, you know, what is in, you know, Cadbury favourites or a chocolate. So what are snacks that everybody knows and loves and can relate to? And how do we as chefs, which is very different to what we normally do, how do we recreate the snack as to reinvent? Because our role normally is to have an idea and to reinvent it and put our own twist in it. This is completely different, but we have to work out exactly how the factory or the business, you know, might actually make this en masse. So it's a bit different for us. And look, it's it's a fun cooking show. It's family entertainment. It's not serious, serious life or death. If I can't make the drumstick or this ice cream, you know, my career's over. It's family fun entertainment for kids. Um, it's rating really, really well. You know, touch with the last episodes on tonight. If that continues to rate well, we'll do a full episode, uh, like a full season next year. And it's just something that goes into how a chef would think about something that everybody knows and loves and how it's made and then what are the secrets behind it. So, you know, that's how it kind of came about. It's going really well so far. I still don't know whether we'll do a, like a season two or not, but so far it seems to be pretty well received. How do you know that you're ready to do that sort of, it's, it's quite a different thing, that hosting thing, isn't it? Yeah, it is a different thing. Look, I did a show online as well about five years ago called The Hot Plate with Tom Parker Bowles. I remember um, that. You know, that rated really well. There were probably a few conflicts between Channel 7 and Channel 9. They didn't end well. So we only got one season out of that. But I suppose, you know, it's just a bit of a personality. People for years have said to me, you should do TV, do this, 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 this. And I've done a lot of media work, a lot of public speaking. I probably speak during the day in the kitchen. It's just not there, you know, there's just not that, you know, many members of the public there. It's only the kitchen team. Um, and it's, look, I find it really easy. And it's because I tend to do TV work based around food. And when you're talking about something that you love and that's been my life for so long and I really understand, then it's actually not that difficult to share that passion, you know, with people. And that's how I kind of try to keep it simple, you know, and I try to make sure that it's relatable, that people understand what I'm saying. And I keep that little bit of Aussie larrikin in there as well, too, which people seem to like. Apparently so, Scott. Yeah. Apparently so. <laughs> Scott, what's next for you? Like you, like if if I again, if I if I look at the 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 trajectory of your career, yeah, you've spent you spent a very long time building your expertise. Yeah, you spent a very very long time getting ready for this moment. You know, there's tw there's twenty years of work. Yep. that start yeah, yeah. from the Please. moment yep. that you, you you start playing in kitchens to the point where you make this decision that says you know what I'm, I'm ready to do this thing by myself and then there's a journey of you know 10 11 12 years then that takes it you know that there's, there's a real ski jump going what's next um and what won't you do okay there's a couple of things so next we you know we've redeveloped the smith street site that used to be st crisp and that's going to be smith street bistro real classic french bistro built around like the beautiful ones that were built in the 1920s, 1930s in Paris, really good local restaurant, French classics that I really was trained that I know inside out that, you know, pro you know probably some of my favourite things to cook, souffles, creme caramel, you know, entrecote and chips, snails, that kind of stuff. So that'll open early next year. And then a massive development down the peninsula, down the coast at the Hotel Continental. 
So the Conti down at Sorrento, which is a huge project, actually, probably our biggest. That opens in March or April. Uh, a signature restaurant named after my grandmother, Audrey, public bar, beer garden, speakeasy, promenade outside dining, pool deck, four event spaces, basically a five-star hotel uh, based around a beautiful uh, late 1800s sandstone pub and building. You know, so that'll take up a lot of my time next year. And then from there, you know, looking at a few different opportunities around, I don't know, they, like I've kind of got 10, 20, 50, 100 ideas. <laughs> and then I kind of wait for them just to, you know, yeah. just to appear and be there. I'm like, this feels yeah. like this has been tinkering. Well, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you about those ideas in the communities in the moment to, uh, and, and we'll bring it to a close. But, but what won't you do going forward? What have you decided that, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to go there? I'll only spend time on a project and not that I haven't loved them all that I'm really invested in that is worth not a financial gain necessarily, but is worth an emotional gain, but more importantly is worth spending my time on. Yeah. And we'd call that character capital. Yeah. You know, it's, it's yep. yeah, cause it, cause it, it, it's more than emotional capital because emotional capital is, what you put into it, but character capital is actually an investment, isn't it? Because you, yep. you're, you're investing in something and that there'll be something fed back in return. And that's that reciprocity that we talked about earlier. Yep. You know, I think sometimes sometimes in society we get, I, I, I think we get caught up between the notion of values, which yep. are things that we pass on to other people, and then value, which is a transactional yeah, thing, yeah, realising yeah, they're actually the same thing. Yep. You know, that, that what we value and what's really important to us, there, are, there has to be something tangible that gets exchanged as well too because otherwise you get jack of it, don't you, at the end? Yeah, you yeah, sit completely. there and say, well, I poured, all my, I poured all my emotions into that. It's like an ungrateful child. I yep. poured all my emotions into that and where's, where's the payoff in returns? There's got yep. to be something that's coming back. Um, how do you keep all the different communities associated with all these different spaces in your head and your heart at the same time? How is there enough of your character to, because this is spread very wide now, isn't it? In yeah, terms yeah, of- yeah, it is, it is. It is. Well, I work a lot. I work six, if not seven days a week. So that gives you more time when you work from nine in the morning to midnight, which is what I've always done in kitchens. Like I run the business during the day from nine till five normally. And then I spend a dinner service in a venue or like a restaurant five or six nights a week. So it's time really, it's time. It's being focused. It's having great people around you empowering them, trying to manage them, trying to accept that I think the biggest thing over the last three or four years is we've kind of grown a bit quicker than I fuck ever planned is accepting and realising that your staff won't always do things the way that you would do it if you're in that job or that position yourself. And it's not right, it's not wrong, it's just different. And that's the big thing. And letting go of little things, trying not to micromanage too much, which is a hard thing to do because... You know, your attention to detail says you've got to do this. This is how the email should be written and spelt and stuff, stuff, stuff. And just accepting that they're trying their best, that if you give them the tools, the support, the guidance, and my kind of role now has evolved and changed over the last two or three years, especially, is to guide the ship and to inspire people and to give them a little bit of time. There we go. Everything I ever learned about learning, I learned from Scott Pickett. <laughs> in a series of conversations. Um, thank you so much, Scott, for the opportunity um, to, to get to know you and to learn from you and your life story. As I said, I, I've, I really believe that if we're going to do today's learning for tomorrow's world, we need to work out how learning occurs right across our society and then 
reinvent our schools so that the type of learning that we do in all sorts of spaces is the type of learning that we do in schools so that we can help more kids find their sense of purpose and put it into practice for the sake of their people and their planet and their place. So thank you. Yeah, thanks, Phil. I think sense of purpose is exactly like a key element. And I was very fortunate that I found my own, that I found mine very early on in my life. And some people never find it. But I think if any young man or woman can find their sense of purpose, live their dream, believe in themselves and try their best, then they've got the best opportunity to have a great life. There it is. And we didn't even get a chance to talk about higher ground, but you know what? I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there and I'm going to report back to um, our Game Changers crew around here. My uh, my uh, my partner in crime, uh, Adriano De Prada, has already been and won't tell me anything about it because he's just... No, 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 it's experience. It needs to be. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 so, so, so I'm really looking forward to that. I'm really looking forward to taking my son to one of your restaurants and I'm really looking forward to having the opportunity to um, to get to know you better in the years to come. Thank you so much. You are a game changer. Like, you know, there's absolutely no doubt about that. And for all those people out there who aspire to change the game and change the game of learning, you could do a lot worse than learn from Scott Pickett. Hey, cheers, Phil. Thanks very much, mate. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.